This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is the seventh episode in the ongoing saga of Raban Sama. Our last episode ended with the Mongol Ilkhan Argun in Persia, surrounded by enemies. He had a powerful ally in the great Khan Kublai, but Persia and China were too far apart, and Kublai was already locked into his own troubles in his contest with his cousin Kaidu. Argun had risen to the Ilkhanate in Persia by supplanting his nemesis Ahmad, a pro-Muslim ruler who had been removed and executed after a short reign. Argun worried that Ahmad's allies, the Muslim Mamluks to the west, would embark on a campaign to conquer Persia. But as he looked for allies, the offerings were slim. Kubla was no help. Only one option remained, Christian Europe the same realms that the Mongol machine had just decades before almost overwhelmed. Would Christian Europe set aside that recent horror to ally with the Ilkhanate and a new crusade to purge the Middle East of the Muslim threat? Well, that's the plan that Argun settled on. For Europeans, the Mongols were deemed as great a threat as the Mamluks, maybe more so. So in a nod to the old saw, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Argun hoped that maybe an alliance could be forged between Persia and the crusading states of Europe. But who to send with the proposal? This is where we open chapter 2 on Raban Sama's amazing epic. And we open that chapter with some background on the political situation in Persia and Europe. Argun wasn't the first Ilkhan to propose a treaty with Christian Europe against the Mamluks. In 1265, Abaka had sent an embassy to the Pope requesting an alliance. Since the Mamluks were pressing hard to wipe out the last of the Altremer, that is the crusader states in the Middle East, Abaka assumed they'd gladly want assistance in their fight. But Europe was weary of crusading. Much ado had been made over the previous 200 years with little lasting result. Indeed, the success of the first crusade was followed on by tragedy after tragedy. In addition to that weariness, the European kingdoms weren't exactly getting along. Just in Italy, the Pope was faced with hostility between the many city-states, with the conflict between Venice and Genoa dominating the Mediterranean. A further intrigue inserted at this time was the relationship between Charles of Anjou and the Pope. Brother to the French king, St. Louis IX, Charles was quite ambitious. He secured the Pope's blessing to become the king of both Naples and Sicily. His goal was to dominate the Byzantine Empire so as to control all trade in the eastern Mediterranean. He saw the Mongols in Persia as a threat to that ambition because the Ilkhan Abaka had married a Byzantine princess. Charles let the Pope know that he wasn't to entertain any alliances with the Mongols for an alliance. Both Kings Edward of England and Louis of France wanted to stage a crusade, but the turmoil in Europe stalled their plans. They managed to pull a crusade together in 1270, but Charles once again deftly managed to take charge of the venture. He changed the goal of the crusade from the Holy Land to Tunis in North Africa, a land that he wanted to conquer in his bid for naval hegemony. When the Tunisians sued for peace and promised to pay tribute, Charles declared the campaign a success. Well, King Edward of England was stunned and sailed his forces to Acre on the coast of Palestine. He then sent an embassy to the Ilkhan Abaka, asking for an alliance against the Mamluks in Syria. But wouldn't you know it? It just so happened that the Shagatai Mongols on Persia's eastern border then invaded, and Abaka was now engaged there, 
He had no troops to send to Edward's aid. Even though Edward was without allies and had a relatively small force, he carried on his campaign for a year that eventually wore both sides out. The Mamluks agreed to a truce that would safeguard the Altrimer for 10 years. Edward then went home, and things settled down for a while, only to spin up again a few years later when a new pope, Gregory X, came to Peter's chair. He had lived for a time in Acre and was eager to see the crusader states of the Middle East secure against the Muslim threat. He hoped to unite Europe's monarchs in another crusade and used an ecumenical council in an attempt to forge that alliance. It was not to be because he died before it could be organized. It turns out Europe was a lot like the Mongol domains, fractured and divided among many interests. These attempts on the part of both Europeans and the Persian Mongols to secure an alliance against the Mamluks just never gelled. Then, in the first half of the decade of the 1280s, things began to change. Charles of Anjou, who had been such a troublemaker in the region, lost power and died. His removal sought new alignments. One of the most significant was Venice's giving up its long-held aspiration to invade Constantinople and take over the Byzantine Empire. They'd been Charles's ally in that scheme. But when he passed from the scene, they instead made a treaty with the Byzantines. Trade began flowing from Venice to Constantinople once more. An uneasy peace was made among the Italian city-states. Back in England, Edward was making plans. He was still amped to participate in a real crusade. He viewed his earlier foray into Syria as little more than a protracted raid. He wanted to see a major campaign of European nobility sweeping Islam from the Middle East. And to that end, he began making plans for an alliance with the Mongol Ilkhans in Persia through marriage. He believed the Ilkhan was a Christian and that a suitable match could be made between their courts that would cement an alliance in preparation for a new crusade. The Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller sent a message to Edward that the battle at Homs between the Mongols and the Mamluks had severely weakened the Muslims and the time was ripe for a new campaign. But in yet another example of bad timing, Edward had to divert the funds that he'd been setting aside for the crusade to deal with an uprising in Wales. Then, in 1285, Honorius IV became Pope, replacing the pro-Charles of Anjou, Martin IV. Honorius owned different political priorities than Martin had. He was all for a crusade and opened talks with Edward to stage one. When Edward asked for special treatment by the Pope and Church, well, the negotiations stalled and plans for the campaign were put on hold. Back in Persia, the Mongols were encouraged in their hope for an alliance with the West when a group of Franciscans that had been sent by Pope Nicholas III stopped there on their way east. They were the answer to Kublai Khan's request for Christian teachers who would come and instruct his court on the ways of the Christian faith. The Ilkhans assumed that they were an embassy sent to them, and they did stay for a while, but then eventually moved on. Then, in 1285, the Ilkhan Argun sent a letter to Pope Honorius informing him of the careful treatment and favor that Christians were receiving in his domains. He then requested a joint campaign against the Mamluks in Syria. Since Honorius was having problems uniting the Europeans in a crusade, he was unable to commit or make any promise of an imminent alliance. But he did make clear Europe's willingness to enter into one when the time was right. In 1286, Argun decided it was time to ramp things up by sending an official embassy to Europe. 
the Mamluks had forged ties with the Turks and the Kurds in a harassing Nestorian communities in the Ilkhan's realm. Because they were his subjects, he wanted to protect them, but he also viewed their harassment as a possible inducement for the Christian West to come to their aid. He promised that if a joint action against the Muslims was successful, well, the Europeans could take control of Jerusalem and their settlements in the Outremer would be safeguarded. The key to acceptance of the offer, Argun believed, would be proportional to the importance of the embassy that he sent. He needed an experienced traveler, someone who could take the long and difficult journey and arrive in Europe ready to go. He needed someone fluent in several languages, a scholar well-versed in the learning of the age, someone with notable accomplishments that would commend him as worthy of listening to. Oh, and he needed to be a Christian, since he'd be meeting with Christian leaders because Europeans were, well, so hung up on status and class, the envoy needed to be of high rank, someone whose office required attention. Raban Sama was the perfect fit for these requirements. Since he was unable to pursue his mission as ambassador to the court of the Great Khan in China due to that conflict with Kaidu, why not send him the opposite direction, west, to the capitals of Europe? But how could he communicate with Europeans? Sama knew many languages by this time, but Italian, German, French, and English were not among them. He had picked up Persian over the last decade while there, and the flourishing trade between Europe and Persia meant that there were many merchants that would be able to translate for him. As for office, Sama was officially an ambassador. He was a close personal friend of the Nestorian patriarch, Mar Yabalaha. Indeed, he'd been instrumental in his selection. While Sama waited for the paths east to open so he could fulfill his role as ambassador to Kublai Khan's court, Yabalaha had made Sama his chief of staff. Argun couldn't ask Sama directly if he would take on the embassy to the west. He had to go through proper channels and ask Yabalaha for his counsel on who to send. The patriarch suggested his friend Sama and then immediately regretted it. This would be the first time for many years and many trials that they had been separated. Yabalaha leaned on Sama's wisdom in leading the Nestorian church. He would be greatly missed. Though Sama's record doesn't say so, he must have needed some persuading as well. But the travel and adventure bug that his young protege Marcos, the now patriarch Mar Yabalaha, had infected him with years before in their isolated cave in the Fang Mountains of China, took over. Their main ambition to visit Jerusalem and the birthplace of Christianity was thwarted by the Mamluk presence there. The next best thing would be to visit the headquarters of both the Eastern Orthodox Church in Constantinople and the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. And if he could pull it off, Sama would have the singular privilege of having visited the headquarters of the three main branches of the church. Not just as a pilgrim, but as an official envoy, someone granted access to see the most sacred places of the faith after the Holy Land itself. So Sama agreed. Yes, he would be Argun's embassy to Europe. Sama thus becomes the Mongols' first ambassador to meet a European monarch. He's the first Chinese to write an account of his travels to the West. Argun gave him written communications and gifts to pass along to the Byzantine emperor, the pope, and the kings of both France and England. He gave him gold for the journey, a caravan of attendants, and the all-important letters patent, forerunners of the modern passport, that ensured Sama's safe passage. Sadly, we don't have Sama's account of his travels. What we have is an early translation of it into Syriac, and the monk who did it 
appears to have edited Sama's account so that while it gives a detailed description of the holy sites that Sama visited, well, it skims over the diplomatic aspects of his mission. So there's no account of the contents of the letters that Argun sent west. Sama's impressions of Europe are all highly abbreviated. The translator was only interested in the religious aspects of Sama's account and only includes the rest of the story as an outline for the context of those religious moments. We'll pick it up here in our next episode as Sama embarks on his journey west. Yeah, <laughs>